uh, week three in a five-week series called Mercy in His Eyes. And what we're doing is every single week we're going back through scriptures. We're looking at how Jesus enters into someone's life and completely turns it upside down for the best reasons possible. And so today we're going to be looking at this passage in scripture where a group of guys uh, uh, crashes a party and they completely wreck the entire house in the process of crashing that party. So if you have your Bibles, it's in scripture. If you have your Bibles, Mark chapter two is where we're going to be. So turn it on, open it up. Mark chapter two, verse one. I'm going to read it. Uh, We're going to pray and we're going to dive in. And when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. God, it is true that your word is truth. There's story after story, testament after testament, passage after passage that declares that your word is truth and you also say that your word will never return void. And so God, I pray that today you would communicate your word, that we would hear what you have to say this morning so that it would not return void, so that we would be able to feel deep within our hearts and deep within our spirits what you have to say is applicable in the past, is applicable now, and applicable to the future. And so, God, I ask and I invite you into this space. If I've prepared anything that'll get in the way or distract, God, get me out of the way so that we can hear clearly your word communicated. It's in your son, Jesus' name I pray, amen. It was out of the overflow of love and perfection that the Holy Trinity created the world. It is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they're sitting, and in the overflow of their love and perfection said, hey, let's put this together. And so the ground is formed, the birds are formed, the animals are formed, man and woman are formed, and Scripture says it was really, really good. The Bible is very clear 
that this was the exact way God had intended all things to be. And man and woman could stand in front of each other naked and unashamed. They were so glorifying God in all that they had and all they did. There was no fear. There was no hiding. God was walking through the garden with them. Wrap your minds, if you can, wrap your minds around that. As you walk throughout the day, you feel, sense, and know God is with you. And that is why and how the Trinity created all things. There was nothing separating us from our Creator. And then in a moment, sin enters the world. Satan tempts Adam and Eve and sin enters the world and then begins the groaning. Later in scripture, we will see in Romans, it says, creation waits and groans and sin fractured the perfect relationship that God had created all things to have with him. And so man sins and he removes himself from God and he hides as if you can ever hide from the God that created all things. He hides himself. He is now feeling ashamed and God now has to step in and cover him and woman. Sin fractures everything. And sin ruins what God intended to be perfect. And because of sin, we are now separated. It's not just something that happened in the past. We are separated from God. We believe the lies that are fed to us by the evil one. We believe the things that we kind of drum up on our own or that just enter our heads. And we start to believe that our life circumstances determine our identities. We say what's happened to us or the decisions that we've made is surely who I am. What do I mean by that? Maybe at some point in your past, you made a decision. And in a moment, you just kind of made this decision. And, and, and years have gone by and you look back to that one night And you have believed the lie that you are incapable of ever having a healthy relationship because of one decision that you made on one night. Or maybe, maybe you find yourself turning to screens or images or food or substances or whatever it may be. You you find yourself constantly coming back to these things. And even though you try to overcome those things on your own, you always find yourself coming right back to it. And so you begin to believe the lie that you will never be overcoming those things. You will believe the lie that this is a part of who I am. Or maybe you find yourself working an ungodly amount of hours throughout the week. And when you really press in, why am I working so much? You really start to find, well, it's because... My neighbor has this thing, and he can't have that thing if I can't have that thing. And why not just be a little bit, have a little bit better, a little bit nicer, or a little bit more? And so you start to begin the believing the lie that the things that you accumulate determine your value or your self-worth in this world. 
We all have these things where there's circumstances that surround us and we attach our identities to those things. And so all of creation waits and groans because as you have felt just like I have, it all continues to pile up. And no matter how many times we think we're getting ahead, it feels like we're just falling behind. And so creation waits and groans. And it's in this spiraling turmoil that the the son, Jesus of the Trinity, the son, Jesus says, no longer can I allow this to happen. And he leaves his throne and he steps into our mess and he comes bringing a message. He comes bringing the message of repentance and forgiveness. And the greatest need that we're going to see today, the greatest need that we have in all of our lives is not for our circumstances to be healed. Jesus tells us that our greatest need is forgiveness. Now, all the nerds in the room, get ready for 30 seconds of happiness, okay? So we're going to set the context for what we're going to be looking at in our passage in chapter 2. I believe that context is everything. So Mark is writing to Romans, okay? He's writing to Roman citizens, and he is writing to Roman citizens. He's taken in the context of who he's writing to. So his is the gospel that is the shortest. He is very quick to get to the details in uh, an ancient Eastern culture, like think Old Testament culture, what we see is uh, this belief that the, the best way to your next door neighbor's house is to taking the long way around the neighborhood. And the belief is that it is in that process, it is in that story that, that God will reveal himself to you. We roll our eyes to that idea. Like why on earth would I waste my time going all the way around the neighborhood to get to my next door neighbor's house? That is Romans. We, we want the facts. We want to know what it is that we need to know so we can apply it and we can move on. And that is also who Mark is writing to. And so Mark is writing this gospel with his context in mind. He's short to the point. He's brief and direct. And so in chapter one, what we see happening is like healing after healing after healing. It's like back-to-back thunderstorms of what Jesus is doing. Boom, 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 boom. And we get to the end of chapter one and he approaches a man with a skin disease called leprosy. And he says, hey, I'm gonna heal you. Uh, I healed you now. Don't go tell anybody. And so naturally when you have your skin disease healed that you've dealt with for a long time now, you go tell everybody. That's what this guy does. And so what, then what happens is Jesus feels this pressure, this tension that people are coming after him because he is healing people. And that's not okay because the church wasn't healing people. So we have to take care of Jesus. And so he leaves and he goes home to Capernaum. Now home is likely just home base for Jesus. And it is likely Simon Peter's house. In verse one, it says, and when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many we're gathered together. Now, these homes are not big, as you can imagine. Think uh, maybe 50 people or so are filling this space. Many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. 
And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Jesus looks in this passage, Jesus looks a handful of different directions, but we're only going to focus on two. Jesus looks two different directions in our passages that we're going to study today. And the first place Jesus looks as we approach this is that he looks up. And I think this is kind of an understatement because I think everybody else in the room is likely looking up as well. Put yourselves in the shoes. Have you ever removed a roof before? Have you ever seen a roof removed? Like even in our context, like removing a roof is not a quiet thing. Like it is not silent whatsoever. And so here we have these four men are bringing their friend. They see that the door is packed. There's no, it's standing room only. There's, nothing, there's no more room. And they have the audacity to think, I'm going to get my friend to the roof. That's a miracle in and of itself. To take a man that's laying on a mat, get him to the roof, and then they slowly start to peel back all these different panels, all these different branches, all of this mud. And it's clearly going to cause a commotion. Like let someone right now go upstairs and start to try to poke a hole through our ceiling. To say that Jesus looked up is an understatement because everybody else is looking up too. And then it's a slow process. Like you start to see a little bit of light and you start to see more panels, more things start to get taken away. And Jesus looks up and what he sees is four faithful friends. He sees four guys that are standing at the top of the roof with another guy laying on a mat. And the four guys, when they approached the house, saw that it was full and didn't say, hey, we're going to pray about this. No, they put feet to action and they climbed up to the roof and started tearing the roof off. They said, their friends said, listen, whatever you have going on, you need to be at the feet of Jesus. And so Jesus looks up and sees four faithful friends that will do anything and everything to get their friend closer to Jesus. They didn't just pray about it. They put their feet to action. They worked together and dared to do something just a little bit different than other people. They refused to let their friend just stay the same way. And so my question to you, church, is what corner of the mat do you need to be grabbing? Like God has placed you in your context for a specific reason. You have the friends that you have. You work at the place you work at. You have the neighbors that you do for a specific reason. So what corner of the mat do you need to be grabbing? As faithful friends, we need to be action-oriented to getting people closer and closer to Jesus. We have been sent as Christians on mission. The mission is to grab a corner of the mat, get to work, and get your friend close to Jesus. Now, where is the foundation for this? Verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith... He said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Think about this for a second. Think about the commotion that is taking place 
The roof has been torn off. And you don't just quickly lower a paralyzed man down on a mat. That doesn't happen. That's not a fast process, okay? Like, you don't want to just drop your buddy down on the floor. That's not going to accomplish what you want to accomplish. And so there's this slow, lowering process. Everybody's watching this thing unfold like a dramatic movie, maybe even a boring movie. It's just slowly happening. Okay, finally, he's on the floor. And remember, his reputation precedes him. Everyone knows what Jesus is getting ready to do, right? Like they just, they just, they, he came from overseas. They do, he just came from where he was, where he was healing after healing after healing after healing. We know what's getting ready to happen here. So to get this guy on the floor so we can get this healing over with and get back to the party. And then Jesus looks down. He looks at the man, and in dramatic fashion, because why not, he leans in and bends down, and he says, not, he, he, he doesn't say, uh, get up and walk. We've heard that before. He leans in, he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And people get mad. <laughs> people are like, you can't, you can't do that. But that's out of, like, Why? Why did Jesus just lean in and say, son, your sins are forgiven? He did it because Jesus knows something is going on greater than this man's circumstance. What Jesus knows is going on is it's not paralysis of the body that needs to be healed. It's paralysis of the spirit that needs to be addressed. It's not paralysis of the body that needs to be healed. It's paralysis of the spirit. And Jesus is looking at this man and says, yeah, I'm going to get to the circumstance. I'm going to get to this whole thing in a minute. But first, your sins are forgiven. Now, in their context, there's this general belief that if you're paralyzed, for example, then it's likely due to some kind of unrepentant sin of your own or of someone else in your past. That's the belief then. John chapter 9 puts that to death for you and I, and it says, uh, no longer are you defined by this whole thing. Like, it's not your sins that gets you where you are. So that's not a belief that we need to hold. But in their context, it was. And so Jesus leans in and addresses what's happening in their own context. And when he looked down, he said, I'm going to address the most and greatest need. See, it's forgiveness that is the greatest miracle ever. It's, it meets the greatest need ever. It costs the greatest price, and it brings the greatest blessing that the world can ever feel. It is sin and rebellion that separate us from the perfect God, the creator God. And so often we confuse the greatest paralysis are the circumstances in our lives. And so often we find ourselves attaching our identities to the failures and circumstances in this world. And so we believe the lies that if I can just get more things, if I can just get the nicer model of this thing, then I will be a better person. People will have more respect for me if I can just drive around in this car. 
If I can just look this certain way, then I will have the respect and admiration of people in this world. If I can just get that one relationship, then I will have the value that I need to have in this world. If I could just kick this habit or this addiction, then I will know that I can be an overcomer. We assume that it's the circumstance that needs to be fixed. The addiction needs to go away. The anger and the rage that needs to go away. The lying, the lust, whatever it is, we think it's those things that need to be healed. And it's not the bad fruit hanging off the tree that needs to be addressed. It's the root system that is corrupting the entire tree. And so often we are saying, God, if this fruit would just be fixed, then I will be fixed. And Jesus leans in and says, that's not it at all. I'm going to get to the fruit, but I need to do a little bit more work before I can ever get to the fruit. Our greatest paralysis is that we might have unrepentant sins in our lives. Our greatest paralysis is that we are holding ourselves back from experiencing a union and a new life that comes in Jesus because we are refusing to repent. We are refusing to call out the things that need to be addressed and be forgiven. But it doesn't end in turmoil. Like when we approach the throne and we do what Jesus is calling all mankind to do, repent, be baptized, and believe, what comes out of that is new life. And it's not new life like in the future, like when I die, I go to heaven. It's not just that. It's new life here and now. It's that your circumstances don't have to define who you are. It's that you can get up and you can walk in a new person, in this new version of yourself and say, I'm an overcomer. And whatever, is, whatever gets me tripped up does not define me. I am not the sum of the things that I do. I am what God has created me to be, what he's created and saved me to be. And Jesus is saying, I want you to have that new life. And so I love the fact that he leans in and looks at this paralyzed man and says, son, your sins are forgiven. He's going to address the body in a second. But first, I'm going to address what's going on on the inside. I experienced this. I experienced this in the last couple of months, if I'm completely honest and transparent. I found myself in the middle of, uh, of this traffic mess. I'm on 38th Street picking up some stuff for work. Some guy cuts me off, and then he cuts me off again, and all of a sudden, I am raging out of control. I'm on the phone with my brother. He hears everything that I have to say, and it's not what I would say from up here. <laughs> and when I'm done, when I come off of this rage cloud, I say, Sean, I'm so sorry. I don't know what that was. And he said, I love my brother. He said, yeah, that wasn't you. You need to figure out what's going on. 
And then we got off the phone. And it's been this process of like four to eight weeks. And it wasn't just like, oh God, I'm mad. Can you take care of me being mad because someone cut off? That's the fruit. Me raging in the middle of traffic is the fruit and it is nasty. So God, you need to come into this mess. Reveal to me what it is I need to repent of. Maybe you're in that same boat. Maybe you're like, man, this fruit is awful, but I don't even know what's wrong with the problem. Start asking God, God, what, what is it? What is it that I need to be repentant of? What is it that I need to seek forgiveness of? This paralyzed man's laying on the floor. He thinks all he needs to do is get up and walk. That's, all, that's the healing that he needs. But what he needs is someone to step in and say, you need forgiveness of this. And so brothers and sisters, what is it in your life that you need to go to God and say, God, reveal to me where I need to be forgiven. See, here's the thing. Satan will do everything he can to trip us up. He will, he will force us into, to be in front of the mirror. And it's going to be a slow thing. It's not going to be a fast thing. I feel like Luke talked about that a few weeks ago. It's going to be this slow burn that Satan kind of draws us away from God. And so every morning he's going to convince us that we need to look at ourselves and we need to think this thing. And we think that thing and it draws us further and further away from God. And the Holy Spirit is the power and the authority, praise God, is the power and the authority, is the helper to reveal those things that are nasty in our lives, to reveal the things that are broken in our lives, so that Christ can then step in and say, Son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus says, I'm not going to give attention to this circumstance yet. Let me dig deeper. And he's going to go on. Don't hear me wrong. He's going to go on. And he's going to tell the man, hey, get up and get out of here. And he does. Your identity is not defined by what you do or the conditions of this world. God wants to make all things new inside of you. Restoration. Being restored. What I mean by this is being restored back into this relationship that God and the Holy Trinity created all of mankind to have. Being restored to this perfect relationship. Restoration begins within your heart and your spirit. It begins at the root. And it's not religious activity. It's not that you grew up in the church. It's not the things that you do that restore you back into that right standing. It's not those things. And while they may be good in and of themselves, they are not the things that restore you back to God. It's the, it's the repairing of the root system that brings about the restoration. And God desires a restored relationship with all of his creation. It only happens first with forgiveness. So what am I supposed to believe out of all of this? We just unpack Jesus looks up, Jesus looks down. What am I supposed to believe? 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16. This is Paul talking. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, this is what I'm talking about. Therefore, 
If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. If we do what Jesus says and we repent, we're baptized, and we believe, we are a new creation. The old has passed away. That old you that stands in front of the mirror that's ashamed is dead. In Christ, you have new life. You've been made new. You are no longer defined by that old person standing in front of that mirror. Stop getting tripped up in that. That's not who you are. All of this is from God, who through Christ restored us to himself. It's not what you did. It's not the sin that you did that separates you from God. It's the sin that separates you from God. But the the restoration process comes from God. What does that mean? That means when you sinned, God said, I'm not going anywhere. When you sinned and you removed yourself just like Adam did and hide yourself in the trees and the bushes, God says, I'm still coming after you. You are too special to me to leave you in hiding. I'm coming after you. And it is by God's grace that we have been restored to himself. And then, same verse, gave us the ministry of restoration. That is in Christ, God was restoring. And I know the passage says reconciling, but we can break that word down to be restoration. That is in Christ, God was restoring the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Your sins no longer define you because God says, I don't even care about it. I love you so much. I'm going I'm to wipe that away so that I can stand with you. And entrusting us the message of restoration. Verse 20, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. This is calling us to believe that in Christ we are a new creation. That is in Jesus' name, we have been restored back to that relationship that he created us to have with him. And when we are restored, he says, now go and grab a corner of the mat and get to work in this ministry of restoration. So what am I encouraging you and myself and everyone listening to do with all of this? It's the same message Jesus spoke. Repent and believe and be baptized that it is in Jesus' power and authority that he restores the relationship that he desired to have with us at the beginning of creation. And so if you're sitting here and you're tired of waking up every single day with this weight of a decision that you made years ago, if you're tired of waking up with this weight of the things you can't control, but you continue to fall back to it over and over and over again. If you find yourself feeling the weight of just getting more and more things and it doesn't make you feel better, my encouragement to you is repent. Set that to the side. Put put to death that old life. 
It's not gonna, it's not gonna, it's not gonna bring you joy. It might make you happy in a moment, but then someone will cut you off in traffic and then you're no longer happy. Put that old person to death. Repent. Get the forgiveness that Christ wants to give to you. The next thing I want you to do, once that happens, once you step forward in confidence and authority in this new life that God's given you, I want you to grab a corner of the mat. If you consider yourself to have that new self, that new life, you consider yourself to be a Christian, the work is just beginning. What corner of the mat do you need to be grabbing today? What is the friend that needs you to drag him to where Jesus is, to rip off the roof of the building that Jesus is in and drop him down to be in front of Jesus? Where's that person? Who's that person? What's the corner of the mat that you need to grab? And in an attempt to eliminate as many excuses, I feel like I've earned a little bit of relational credibility to say excuses. To eliminate those excuses, we've wanted to make it extremely easy for you to figure out which corner of the mat maybe you should be grabbing. And so today, like Nick said, there's a volunteer fair. And it's out in the lobby. And the volunteer fair exists. And like, maybe the corner of the mat that you need to be grabbing is for the children's ministry. Like, maybe the people that God is actually wanting you to grab and bring closer to Jesus, maybe it's the third, fourth, and fifth graders. Maybe, maybe the corner of the mat that you need to be grabbing is to be a part of the worship and tech team. Maybe the corner of the mat to, to help us bring us closer into the presence of Jesus is by being a part of this team. I don't know. I would encourage you to seek your heart. Go have a conversation. The truth of the matter is we need to repent, seek forgiveness, and be made new. And then we need to get to work. And we need to grab a corner of the mat that God has in store for us. Let's pray. God, you're so good. Your power and your authority extend beyond our circumstances. Your power and your love and your authority and your perfection says that you desire relationship and that you pursue the relationship so that we can be with you. And so God, our Father, may we come back to you. May we find our identities as a son and daughter to your throne. May we find our identities in that and not the circumstances of this life. And so God, for my brothers and my sisters that sit in front of me, I pray that they would experience your forgiveness that they would experience your grace and they would experience what it means and what it looks like to find their identities in you and not the things of this world. The old analogy that there's no plan B, there's only plan A. 
And that's from you working through your church. God, my brothers and my sisters, to my church, I pray that we would be formed by you. And we would be formed by you leaning in and saying, sons and daughters, your sins are forgiven. May we find refuge and our identity in that. Give us power. Give us authority in your Holy Spirit to grab our corner of the mat and to go and be on mission. It's in your son Jesus' name I pray.